0: Coming up conversation with uh, Norman Orenstein, co-author of the book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, talking about our dysfunctional political system. And uh, we've had recent evidence of that with the sequester and other uh, budget ceiling uh, shenanigans. We'll be talking with Norman Orenstein first, a comment about yesterday's program. They wanted to get in right away. This is from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. He says, is there uh, talking about our program yesterday about... uh, the uh, are we hardwired to believe in God? And what if the big questions in college collide? Norman Adler from Yeshiva University and Norm Jones from USU, our guests, uh, Steve and Beaver Dam, says this: Is there a distinction to be made in this conversation between religion and spirituality? I tuned in late, and if you've already covered this, my apology. The Abrahamic religions, for example, believe in God as a distinct and real personality. By my understanding, on the other hand, for Buddhists, the notion of God is much less anthropomorphic. Personally, the latter is easier for me to accept and understand than the former. So, for purposes of this discussion, are these distinct but related belief states one and the same thing or entirely different? I will just uh, throw that question out there. Uh, that's Steve in uh, Beaver Dam, Arizona. The book that I uh, made reference to at the beginning of the program by Thomas Mann and Norman Ornstein is even worse than it looks. How the American constitutional system collided with the new politics of extremism, you'll remember, caused quite a stir when it was published uh, last year. Uh, Mann and Ornstein uh, say that the dysfunction in our government is the result of a mismatch between increasingly parliamentary-style parties and our constitutional separation of power. And they pin more of the blame for increasing polarization on Republicans. Their proposed solutions were provocative as well, including mandatory attendance to the polls, changing the politics of political culture through restoring public shame and restoration of full disclosure to campaign financing. Norman Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's coming to Utah on Saturday for the Sundance Author Series. He's my guest for the hour today. Norman Ornstein, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be with you, Tom. Uh, I want to... Uh, ask you some updated questions since the book came out, and of course you write regularly. Uh, for roll call and for Washington Post and and the like, uh, lessons learned since the election of 2012. But I want to get to your central uh, premise, and, and then we'll backtrack from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you say you and your uh, co-author that the our parties are becoming increasingly parliamentary style, and that's clashing with what has been what the separation of powers, the compromise. So what do you mean by increasing in the parliamentary?
1: Well, you know, in a parliamentary system, you have a majority that gets uh, elected and can act uh, and implement policy. The minority reflexively, uh, vehemently opposes everything that the majority does, but can't stop it. Uh, and voters, uh, the culture accepts the legitimacy of the actions Taken by the majority, even if it's a uh, you know a coalition government, uh, and even if they oppose the things that are done, knowing that they're going to have a chance in three, four, five years to throw them out if they don't like it, uh, or to affirm the actions that have been taken. Our system doesn't operate that way, uh, in, at two levels. First, our culture doesn't support it. So when we get with separate elections for the House, the Senate, the Presidency, one party having, uh, all three of those entities, uh, in its control, in the contemporary era two things happen uh, the first is uh... you need sixty votes sixty percent in the senate which doesn't happen in a parliamentary system because the filibuster has now become routine uh... on uh... uh virtually all matters um, the second is that even when the majority can overcome that hurdle uh... our culture is such that if you don't have a broad bipartisan leadership consensus on things that are done if it's done by one party over the vehement opposition of the other, um, half the country sees the actions taken as illegitimate. And then, of course, you can get, as we got after 2010's elections, the real nightmare of a parliamentary uh, minority party in a system like ours, which is divided government and uh, the closest uh, thing you could have to gridlock, and that's the situation that we faced.
0: And uh, you and your co-author, Thomas Mann, pin more of the blame for polarization, I recall, on on the Republican side? Uh,
1: What we've said is that both parties have uh, become more polarized and more unified. Um, You know, to step back a minute, uh, Tom Mann, my co-author, and I came to Washington uh, about 43 and a half years ago. And back then, and for uh, the couple of decades that followed, um the parties generally tended to be somewhere near the middle and a lot of mixture between them, if you use the football field analogy. Democrats may have been congregated uh, with a center of gravity around the 140-yard line, the Republicans the other. Now they've moved – Uh, there's no center. Uh, There's no overlap uh, to speak of between the parties. The Senate, uh, a couple of years ago, um, the most uh, conservative Democrat was to the left of the most liberal Republican. But what's happened is the Democrats have probably moved to where their center of gravity is around their own 25 or 30 yard line. And the Republicans have moved behind their own goalpost. Hmm. And, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. We have All kinds of evidence from systematic uh, roll call voting uh, studies, Uh, political scientists named Poole and Rosenthal have come up with measures. uh, They did it this many years ago that can go back to the first Congress and look. And we haven't had uh, a party uh, as conservative as this in at least a century and perhaps not ever.
0: Let's go. Let's go back. Uh, So what what has caused this?
1: Uh, You know, there's so many factors, some of them going back many decades. Um, We've seen a dramatic regional realignment in the country. Uh, When I came to Washington, uh, the Democratic Party was in the majority. They'd been there for 15 years of what became 40 consecutive years in the House because they had two power centers, uh, southern conservative rural Democrats, non-southern, mostly urban liberals, and they could join together and what they had in common was they could create a majority the republican party had a substantial number of moderates and liberals uh... in the northeast and the west coast in particular and then uh... and you could probably date this uh... some of this change to nineteen sixty five uh... when lyndon johnson signed the voting rights act he turned to his then aide harry mcpherson and said Uh, This is going to cost the Democratic Party, the South, for generations to come. And I think the civil rights uh, revolution made a difference here. Uh, But also, uh, the late political scientist Nelson Poulsby some years ago pointed out, we have to look to air conditioning. That when you began to get air conditioning as a common feature in homes and factories, uh... it suddenly became feasible for older people the so-called snowbirds uh... to live year-round in the south and not have to deal with the oppressive summers and it became feasible for businesses to move manufacturing plants to places where they could air-condition them and work through the year and so we saw a lot of uh... migration of generally speaking older republicans and uh... upwardly mobile business uh... uh executives uh, who were Republicans moving to the south from the northeast, changing both regions. And then the west coast, of course, we had the combination of the in-migration of Asian Americans and Hispanics, along with a number of liberals attracted by the climate and uh, the moderate social positions that transformed those regions. So that has a lot to do with it. And then I think, uh, you know, if you look at the modern day, the money system and campaigns, the coarsening of the culture that attracted some kinds of people to go into politics and others who tended to be more centrist and compromising not to do so, the rise of a tribal media, all have contributed to these phenomena.
0: I'd like to follow up on those last two. They seem especially important uh, in, a, in a broader sense. Uh, the the coarsening of the culture, I wonder if you could follow up uh, on that and how that's affected our politics.
2: Um.
1: You know, I, I think what's happened is uh, we now live in a world, uh, partly because of the changes in the media, uh, partly just I think some of this goes in cycles, but we live in a world where lying, for example, brings no shame, no approbation. If you get caught in a lie, well, you double down on it and uh, uh, brazen it through. Uh, there's a pretty good chance if you're an outsider, you might get your own cable television show um if you're an insider uh you can become a figure of uh, national acclaim uh saying wild and outrageous things about people doesn't bring any kind of sanction or problem uh it can bring you uh, a greater spotlight on the latter front uh you know take somebody like senator ted cruz the new senator from texas who pretty much in a hearing uh accused uh, chuck hagel of uh having enriched himself uh off of uh terrorists uh or others, John McCain rebuked him. He didn't much care, and he's Cruz is now one of the darlings uh of a political movement uh If you move into a world like that and a world where there's so much money to go into negative campaigns and ads uh where all the incentives are to trash uh opponents. Um It adds to a kind of uh, sense of a tribal conflict it 's us against them
0: and uh, we 'll talk about some solutions to kind of follow the uh, structure of your book, but I-, I wanted to ask you about a solution to this. One of your proposed solutions is restoring public shame how do you isn 't that genie out of the bottle How do, how do you get it back?
1: Um, You know, I think the only way we're going to get it back is if there's a visceral public reaction against it, which is not there yet, but some of it has to be uh, opinion leaders uh, such as they are, and we don't have very many of them, uh, beginning to band together and say, shame on you for uh, lying. You know, some of it in a modest way can begin with the fact-checking, That takes place uh, in some of the prominent news organizations. Uh, If an individual repeatedly gets uh, hit with uh, charges of uh, four Pinocchios or uh, pants on fire, the kinds of characterizations of brazen lies, um, maybe that will make a difference. Um, although I must tell you that uh, uh you know, to pick another example, nobody had more of those uh warning signals about false statements than Michelle Bachman in the last year. And to be sure, uh that weighed on Bachman and she almost lost her house seat uh, as a consequence. But she went out uh last week in front of the CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, and said a bunch of things that once again got her Uh, awarded with four Pinocchios uh, uh, for not telling the truth and uh, so it doesn't seem to have stopped her. We're a a long ways from being able to um, change that culture. And, you know, when you get into a debate about uh, health uh, reform and you get charges of death panels arising over uh, an idea that actually had been championed for years by Newt Gingrich, namely to have Medicare pay for advanced counseling sessions for families before they enter that final horrible stage uh, where a loved one is uh, in, uh, is dying to make uh, reasoned judgments about how you're going to handle the end of life, to call that a death panel and basically suggest that you got people who are uh, willing to uh, let people die with glee so they can save a few bucks. Uh, that doesn't help uh, create reasoned discussion and uh, uh, reasonable compromise.
0: We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be back and talk about uh, changes in the media, which uh, Mann and Ornstein, in their book, uh, say have, have not been helpful to, uh, to to lessening the dysfunction in our political culture. We'll uh, get to talking about solutions as well. And uh, Thomas Mann and Norman Ornstein, in their book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, do propose a, a wide range of <coughs> excuse me, solutions. Uh, well, will throw that question out to you as well. What should we do to fix our uh, broken political system? The number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, 826 1495 826 1495 or you can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Norman Arnstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He writes a weekly column for Roll Call called Congress Inside Out. He writes frequently for Washington Post and other publications, and uh, he is co-author of the book It's Even Worse Than It Looks. We're talking about the dysfunction in our political culture, what we do about it, and uh, what caused it uh, back after this. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and
2: civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience.
1: Is your car doing strange
2: things? And then it's like backing off, and then it's sort of like stuttering, like...
0: It's been a long winter, hi Andy? Man.
1: been a long winter, you've had a lot
0: of time to get a oh little lonely up there. Join us for more keen yet sensitive analysis this week on Car Talk.
2: Saturday mornings at 10, and if you miss it, Sunday evenings at 5.
0: You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking about the book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. You'll recall it caused quite a stir. Very uh, interesting book when it came out last year. It's a New York Times bestseller. And uh, the co author, Norman Orenstein, is my guest for the hour on the program. He's coming to the Sundance Author Series, of course, he's at uh, Sundance uh, the Resort. Uh, The doors open at 11.30, that's on Saturday, this Saturday, so doors open at 11.30 a.m., brunch begins at noon, author presentation 1 p.m., and it's uh, followed by guest question, answer, and book signing. So that is this Saturday at uh, the Sundance Resort, Norman Orenstein, my guest. We're talking about the dysfunction in Washington, and uh, I don't think we need to spend too much time on whether there's dysfunctional atmosphere in Washington. All you have to do is uh, look at the uh, ongoing, endless uh, budget uh, battle uh, in Washington. We're talking about what uh, caused that, how we got here and uh, what some solutions might be. And uh, the number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. 826 1495 one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can email us at UPR at at gmail.com com. at gmail.com. Perhaps we could talk about uh, media, the media balkanization is what some people uh, call it and uh, it, I don't know, it seems to me that this is we're, we're becoming more sort of a European style parliamentary media system uh, in this country as well where every some countries every party has their own media outlet.
1: I see you're exactly right. And uh, it's worrisome. You know, we've had uh, partisan media in the past in our history. Uh, you go back to the 19th century, uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, indeed, if you look at some of the screeds written in the 18th century at the beginning of the Republic, uh, they, they make some of our dialogue look tame by comparison. But if you look at where we are now, the depth and breadth and reach and immediacy of uh, electronic media especially, uh, combined with the amplification of social media and emails and the new business models that exist out there, It's it's a wacky world in many ways when Fox News, which has an audience at any given time of two and a half million people can make more in net profits than all three network news divisions with an audience of 30 million people uh, combined. Um, But that business model that attracts the right 2.5 million people and one that's been adopted in a more diluted form uh, on the other side by MSNBC that's taken them from being a uh, almost uh, uh, eradicated by their parent company because they were such a money loser to being more valuable than NBC right now, um, is you search for that tribal audience. And so the business models reinforce it. You know, let's face it, if Rush Limbaugh tomorrow uh, decided to have a new message, can't we all just get along Um, Barack Obama's trying to do the right thing, let's find ways to work with him. Um, He'd probably lose 20 million people over uh, the course of that day who would migrate to other talk radio hosts who reinforce what they really want to believe. Uh, The same with Roger Ailes and Fox with his 2.5 million. You get a wolf news uh, that would uh, emerge to compete with it. And so the incentive to divide is very great out there. And the fact that we get an audience that has a set of facts developed from listening to the same people over and over again and then having it reinforced by emails, whether they're true facts or false facts, and we don't share a common set of facts, is a real uh, challenge to the cohesion of the society. Hmm.
0: And we... We used to have that. We used to have a common set of facts. Now we don't.
1: We used to have a common set of facts, by and large. Now, you know, there were real problems in the 50s and 60s when we mostly got our news from three networks, and those were the only choices we had, or from one or two newspapers, and those were the only choices we had. And now we've got far more choice. And, of course, those entities were gatekeepers, and there were some issues... Uh, that uh, never really got discussed, but the fact is, most of us got information and we did share facts about the world, and we could then debate, hammer and tong, uh, what to do about those things. You know, if you take a world now where um, a substantial share of the population believes that climate change or global warming is a hoax. And that the scientists who support it uh are perpetrating the hoax, how can you have a rational discussion of what to do about climate uh if you all if we all understood and this is something I've actually discussed a little bit with uh john huntsman um <laughs> he told him I thought. Uh, The moment when uh, I knew his chances of winning a Republican nomination were zero uh, were when, in an early debate, he said, maybe those scientists have something to tell us. Um, But, you know, you can talk about whether we should do a carbon tax, a cap-and-trade system or something else, uh, whether we should move a little bit more slowly or move more quickly, what to do about alternative fuels, what to do about carbon recapture and coal – All of those things you don't end up discussing if you can't even start with a common premise, and that's a problem in many issue areas.
0: Let me, uh, if I could, uh, I don't know, be presumptuous enough to to speak for uh, the true believer conservatives, a couple of points and have you respond to them. Uh, Some will say, you know, the mainstream media, the way it was with the three networks and what we were talking about, common set of facts, what if that common set of facts is wrong? What if what, what if that uh, leans too liberal? And then that's one problem. The other problem is this uh, idea of permanent campaign and uh, trying to nullify the results of the election. If you really believe that the results were, were wrong, what, w- wouldn't you try to fight that permanently?
1: Well, you know, in, in decades past, uh, partly I think because we did have overlap, but also because the orientation was towards solving problems, there was a sense that if we ended up with a policy that people voted against or disagreed with, that you could try and come back to the battle at different times, but you had a fiduciary responsibility once something was enacted uh, to implement it so that it could work as uh, as best as it's supposed to to solve a problem that, generally speaking, we all agreed was a problem. That just doesn't happen anymore. And one of the things we write about in the book is what we call the new nullification. Uh, Nullification, of course, being an attempt to just simply uh, deny that laws existed, uh, which occurred around the time of slavery. But in this case, uh, if you look at the confirmation process in the Senate of executive appointees, in the past, there's a role for the Senate of advice and consent the Senate generally would block or reject nominees by majority if there was a strong feeling that the nominee lacked the credentials, didn't have the qualifications, was wild and extreme, or had moral uh, uh, challenges. Now uh, you look at positions like the, Center for Medic- the head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, as it's called, which is the prime spot for implementing the Affordable Care Act. Republicans in the Senate refuse to uh, confirm anybody, no matter the credentials. The person who's been acting in that job was actually endorsed by Eric Cantor. She'd been a prominent figure in the medical community in Virginia. But a minority blocks that appointment because they don't want to see the law implemented. Um, The same with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau – that 's different, and it strikes at the basic ability of a society and a government to function
0: hmm. I, I wonder uh, speaking of this uh, this asymmetry and polarization, I wonder if you could speak to why we got got there and then we 'll get on to talking about some solutions. Um, some might dispute that, but uh, you, you talk about you know studies and uh, I think many agree that there is an asymmetry here the, the football analogy the Republicans have retreated to behind their goalposts, and the Democrats are somewhat, you know, a little closer to the center of the field. How did we get there?
1: Um, It's not going to be easy. And, you know, for some of the reasons we've talked about um, uh, already today, uh, the culture uh, has become more tribal. And I should say, you know, by tribal, I mean, uh, if you're for it, I'm automatically against it even if I was for it yesterday, that's different from simply having sharp ideological differences or differences in world worldview. Um, so, you know, that that's uh, a, 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 an even greater challenge. We can resolve issues like the deficit and debt. We've seen groups that span the spectrum, like the Simpson-Bowles Commission, the Senate Gang of Six, able to come up with a template to do it. But if it's, uh, well, then if you're for it, I'm against it you've got that problem. So we need to change the culture, which is the hardest thing in the world to do. But to some degree, we have to change institutions and structures and rules in ways that may uh, help to change that culture. So I'm particularly uneasy about the fact that a smaller group of individuals um, operating in party caucuses or in primaries Um, and uh, can uh, dominate a process and uh, basically block even the choices that otherwise would be available to the larger electorate, and the fact that our politics uh, in general elections are all driven by uh, uh, motivating your own base while suppressing the other sides. So I want to enlarge the electorate and I'd like to do that if I could. Uh, it's not going to happen if I could, you know, snap my fingers or wave the magic wand with something like the Australian system of mandatory attendance at the polls. In Australia, you don't have to vote. You can show up at the polls and cast a ballot for none of the above. Or you can write a note explaining that you were busy uh, uh, traveling, that you were sick. Uh, and if not, you have to pay a fine of about 15 to $20. And their turnout is over 90% in their elections. And it means that when people, when politicians of all stripes are out there campaigning in an election, they know that their base is going to be there. They know the other side's base is going to be there. And they focus on the voters, the persuadable ones in the middle. Um, we're not going to do that. So I'd like to see an expansion of a system like California has of open primaries um, and I'd combine it with preference voting, where you don't just vote for an individual, but you list your preferences in order, and then uh, you can aggregate those preferences. And it means that extreme candidates who win a you know plurality, narrow plurality, are going to have less chance of winning. Um, if we do those sorts of things... Then I think, um, and if we do more to encourage voting, uh, I'd like to move the uh, election day to the weekend uh, from noon Saturday to noon Sunday, 24-hour period, no Sabbath problems, and uh, none of the long lines that occur in rush hours for people who work uh, first thing in the morning and at the end of the day. Um, we could um, at least have an expression of that larger electorate while there's still – Um, uh, uh, strong feelings uh, that cut across the spectrum there. Um, There are changes we can do inside the process. It would be nice to do something about redistricting, and it would be nice uh, to do something to return the filibuster to the role that it traditionally played. Uh, a lot of areas where we could implement change, but uh, uh, they're all uphill battles at the moment.
0: By the way, my I was going to ask you about the Australian uh, system. My understanding could be mistaken. They 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 have a, a stick, which is the fine. They also have a carrot, don't they? Which is um, you, you get your get yourself in a in a lottery. Uh,
1: in some uh, elections, although not in their national elections, okay. And I've actually proposed uh, as an alternative because we don't like uh, mandates. Um, doing a lottery um uh and you know you could even do this at the local level imagine if you had uh an election for uh mayor of Provo and uh a local car dealer uh donated a mercedes um and uh or a cadillac pick your uh choice um and the way it would work is There'd be five names picked at random from the voter registration rolls, and then uh, there would be a choice made after the election. And if uh, the person uh, designated had, could prove that he or she had voted, they win the car. All it's going to take is one election where some uh, poor sap uh, decided not to vote, and there goes the Cadillac. Uh, before you'd have turnout up a, a very substantial amount. Um, so, and you know, just imagine a uh, mega millions lottery. Uh, if you have <laughs> millions of people uh, staying out uh, all night in lines to get their chance at $300 million. <laughs> Uh, that could do wonders for our uh, turnout in uh, national elections. Uh,
0: yeah, that's, I'm, I'm envisioning that. It, it could be televised, and it would, it would be, it would be quite, yeah. quite the thing. Uh, I would push back on that idea a little bit. Are, are, are these the voters you want voting? They're, they're only there for the money.
1: Um, you know, uh, there is an argument, of course, that uh, the people who don't vote are more ignorant than the people who do although i must say uh, if uh, you uh, uh, look at the general level of uh, public awareness of uh, the world it's pretty abysmal to begin with but you know to be frank i'm i'm more interested in the consequences uh and i'm perfectly happy to go in directions that simply Uh, create more of an opportunity for people to vote instead of making it difficult or suppressing those votes. But mostly what I want is to have the larger public's viewpoint at the forefront of politicians' minds instead of those of the uh, cranky uh, minorities uh, who now dominate the process.
0: I wonder if uh, we can learn lessons from two recent senatorial elections here in uh, in Utah. Of course, you—I'm you, you, sure you're aware—we have a, a kind of a rare caucus and convention system, and uh, that has tended to, uh, to to move us in an extreme direction, at least in the view of some. Uh, so uh, Senator Bennett was defeated at the at convention yeah. uh, a couple of years ago, and then uh, Senator Hatt certainly learned some lessons from that. But also, it seems some inst- some key institutions here in Utah were worried about that, including the LDS Church. Um, and they encouraged their members to go out to the uh, caucuses um, and I think you reading between the lines uh, they wanted uh, more moderation and uh, and other institutions uh joined in and uh, I have friends who went to the uh, caucuses, never gone before because of that they were worried they were concerned about what happened to, to senator bennett and uh and it, it did seem like that produced a more moderate uh, convention um I guess, first of all, the open primaries is what you want, but do, if we yeah. have this system, some institutions getting involved, maybe that's a lesson for, for the broader uh, populace.
1: Yeah, and I, I certainly agree with that. Um, if you uh, uh, are not going to be able to wave your magic wand and create uh, open primaries with preference voting, um, at least uh, get the prominent institutions involved uh, to try to ameliorate... The worst impacts that can occur with uh, a caucus system um, where you get a distorted result and I think that is what happened uh, in uh, Utah before it's another part of the larger uh, issue too uh, going back one of the reasons that I think we've had some of this tumult uh, in the last couple of years and you know in the book we spend a fair amount of time talking about the debt limit debacle uh, from two thousand and eleven uh... but you know in that instance the business community was pretty much absent without leave didn't play any significant role in stepping up and saying you can't do this you know we can't have uh... full faith and credit of the united states uh... played with as a toy or used as a hostage and because they didn't we got the first downgrade in credit uh... in the u.s. in history the business community stepped up more when it came to resolving the fiscal cliff Um, now we'll see if they step up again, as we apparently have another uh, potential use of the next debt limit uh, probably coming up sometime this summer as a hostage to a new set of demands. Uh, But, you know, one way you can ameliorate this is when groups, instead of just identifying with one of the tribes and deciding they're not going to step on the party message, uh, actually step up and say, this should not be done or shame on you for doing this.
0: One of the solutions that some people are putting out there, you have on, on, on your chapter on bromides to avoid, and you spoke of Governor Huntsman before. He's he's embraced this no labels movement. I'm not sure if this is a third party thing, but uh, and the impulse to, to moderate and come to the center is certainly, I think, you would would applaud. But a third third party, um, you're saying it's just not going to happen. So we don't waste yeah. our energy.
1: It's you know, among other things, we have. You know, people uh, are understandably searching for some wonderful or even easy solution. Uh, The the, uh, uh, knight riding in on the uh, uh, white steed to save the day, uh, that's what Americans-elect tried to do. Um, You know, one problem, and a, a huge one, is the nature of our system, the structural elements of the system, Uh, Make it uh, an enormous challenge to develop uh, a third party. And if it existed, if you did have a a candidate for president, for example, uh, who emerged as an independent, you still have to win a majority of electoral votes to win the White House So uh, a successful third-party candidate almost certainly is going to throw the election into the House of Representatives uh, or possibly elect um, a candidate who's extreme and who might not otherwise win. Um, And if that candidate managed to win, the nature of our system is such that with 535 seats in the House and Senate – and almost all of them um, uh, held by members of one of the two political parties you'd have a president with no adherence uh... to try and get things through congress so i think we need to move in a different direction now what's also true tom is that especially in the republican party and you see this from the you know new uh, report from the republican national committee they have a challenge maintaining their strongest adherents and at the same time reaching out to other uh... parts of the electorate um and the strongest adherents are far more conservative than what we saw uh, even a couple of decades ago and remember it's not me but uh... jeb bush who's not exactly a republican in name only who said that ronald reagan couldn't win a presidential nomination uh... right now and i think what that means is A lot of people who are like John Huntsman, who tend to be slightly more moderate on social issues, who are fiscally conservative, but in this case it means that their uh, motivation is to reduce debt and deficits, not uh, first to cut taxes, um, don't have an easy home. And there'll be a time when there'll be a real challenge because they're not going to be particularly comfortable necessarily in the Democratic Party. But many of them, and I've heard from a whole lot, are no longer very comfortable in the Republican Party. We don't have an easy outlet for that for the reasons that I've suggested, and I'm not sure where we go with it.
0: We're going to take a brief break, and then when we come back we do have an email. We'll uh, run past uh, Mr. Ornstein in and in a, a call, so uh, be patient. Uh, a break. We're talking with Norman Ornstein, who is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a weekly columnist for the Roll Call. He writes for many other publications, including Washington Post. Uh, he and Thomas Mann wrote a New York Times bestseller. You're uh, no doubt aware of this. It's even worse than it looks. How the American constitutional system collided with the new politics of extremism. We're talking about solutions, how do we fix our broken system? We'll talk more about this uh, following the break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by USU's Kane College of the
2: Arts, presenting Utah Symphony, led by Associate Conductor Vladimir Kulinovich. This Saturday at 8 p.m. in USU's Performance Hall. Tickets and information are at arts.usu.edu.
0: Are you deadline-driven, most productive as zero-hour approaches? Well, what about the ultimate end, the true end of the time frame?
1: Deadline indeed. How does knowing that you're going to die affect your life? I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, on To the Best of Our Knowledge, we're minding mortality. It's To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI,
2: Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The book is It's it's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, and we're talking about why our political system is dysfunctional and uh, how we can uh, solve the problem. Uh, Norman Orenstein is my guest for the hour. He is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, co-author of this book, and he's coming to Utah for the Sundance Author Series. He'll be at the Sundance Resort on Saturday. Doors open at 11.30 a.m. Brunch begins at noon. Author presentation 1 p.m., followed by guest question and answer and book signing. Uh, More information at SundanceResort.com. Let's get right to our email and our call. This from uh, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. What does Mr. Ornstein think of instant runoff voting or some similar polling method designed to encourage politicians to appeal to the broad center rather than taking extreme positions, which is a favored strategy in the current highly gerrymandered electoral system? As I recall, endorsing something along these lines cost Lenny Guineer a cabinet position some years ago, but it might now be an idea whose time has come. That's from uh, Steve. Ornstein, I think you'd view something like this favorably.
1: Skeptic before uh, years ago, Um, but, um, you know, this is, in fact, a form of preference voting, the instant runoff voting. And um, uh, I've been working with an organization called FairVote, which has done some really terrific work and alternative uh, systems of voting to try to improve this process. So I do view it favorably.
0: By the way, uh, you can participate at upraxcess at gmail.com. That's how Steve did it. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Also on uh, the phone, 1 800 826 1495. 1 800 826 1495. That's how David in Salt Lake has reached us. Uh, go ahead, David.
2: Hi, thank you for taking my call. It's a great conversation. Thank you for having it and thank you for letting me be part of it. Um, I started a, boy, this, I think this, this issue underlies and undermines every other thing, and uh, I I started a small nonprofit, the Utah Civics Literacy Project, to try to address this. The things that you would mentioned, I think instant runoff voting is indeed one of the keys. I, as I understand, one of the largest organizations. Um, in, that actually uses instant runoff voting from day to day is actually the Utah Republican Party for their interparty party votes. I could be wrong on that, but I've heard that multiple times um and i and I think it's a great place to start. I also would like to hear your idea of um what I think would be really one of the biggest bangs for the buck, which is lowered the voting age to sixteen um I think that you know the system that we have now. A lot of it can be attributed to just the lack of civics literacy. Um, teachers don't teach how to get involved. They don't know themselves. If you ask about 100 people on the street who their elected representatives are, for example, state senator and state representative, about 100 will tell you they have no idea. And that's a problem. I um, So... I think that if you were to lower the voting age to 16, where modern adult life starts in our society, you're going to start to actually have candidates go into the schools, have candidate forums for exactly, for, for example, sorry, with real results. Um, I, I've heard another spin put on it that uh, I hadn't considered, which is right now we have taxation without representation. Of course, kids can start working at 16. That's, once again, when your adult life starts. You get your driver's license. You can move out of the house. Um, By the time 18 rolls around, boy, people are just too busy to actually really get involved. And I think that is one of the key things. And as a little side note, I also wanted to mention, uh, of course, we hear these pathetic um, voter turnout numbers. It's actually about half that, the real number of what people are thinking in their heads. They're thinking that number represents the percentage of those eligible to vote that turned out, when, of course, it's typically only about half the eligible population that's even registered, and that number that is touted about so often is actually the percentage of those registered um, thank, thank have you a lot to digest there yeah
0: oh that, that's great some some great points david glad you called uh, david in salt lake city uh so mr ornstein uh, several points there maybe we could start with the lowering the voting age to 16 i think this just happened in argentina several other countries do this
1: yeah and you know of course there's a long time trend to expand uh voting um you know i and uh, it's it's something worth thinking about of course we lower, when we lowered the voting age to 18 it was a long effort uh led in particular by ted kennedy and the most powerful point there was uh we draft people to fight and die um, at 18 how can you deny them the right to vote um that's a, a powerful and logical point for uh... eighteen there are other reasons to think about moving to sixteen because uh... uh... people have uh... uh, uh some right at least to be able to make decisions on uh... things uh, on people who are going to be making decisions that affect their lives Um but i think that's going to be a tough one uh... to uh... to sell right now um, i I think we've got to move in other ways to try to expand the uh, uh, electorate, at least in the short run.
0: I wonder, uh, maybe to address a running out of time, I want to address what seems to be the, the one of the most intractable parts of this uh, dysfunction, and that is this, sort of this idea of the permanent campaign. It seems like that's gotten worse and worse. And, uh, and yeah. Some of the solutions, of course, we can't do, you, and you would say that in the book. Uh, yeah, you'd maybe like to eliminate the midterm elections, but uh, you know that'd be hard to do. Um, maybe just uh, say, hey, we'll, we'll go to a parliamentary system. Of course, we can't do that. So uh, I wonder how, how we pull that back, this permanent campaign idea.
1: <laughs> it's one of the toughest uh, challenges that we have, and this to some degree also rests uh, uh, with the voters. If um, political actors believe that they will get payoffs from uh, making the process work less well having people get dissatisfied and then the next election vote the ins out and the outs in um, you are in a perpetual process where we just deteriorate further Um, if that uh, cycle gets broken and it doesn't work then you've got an opportunity to do something a little bit different. And, you know, to to put it on an interesting footing, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Eric Cantor, the House Majority Leader, um, was uh, subject to a profile uh, in The New Yorker by uh, Ryan Lizza. And in a conversation with uh, Lizza, he took responsibility for blowing up the grand bargain that, Uh, Was at least under discussion between the president and uh, uh, Speaker Boehner in 2011. And Candor said, Well, I just thought, why should we compromise with this guy? Uh, Let's wait for the election. We can win it all, and then we can do whatever we want. Now, of course, that meant we got the downgrade of credit in the U.S. and inability to resolve our debt problems, and it failed. Um, now we're back to a mentality among many that is, all right, well, now we'll do it for 2014. But what we're also seeing, because of the spectacular failure of Republicans to implement that strategy, is this serious rethinking going on of where the party stands and what it ought to be doing, and at least more willingness on the part of Uh, senators like uh, Bob Corker of uh, Tennessee and Saxby Shambliss of of, uh, Georgia and uh, uh, a a number of others, uh, Lamar Alexander, to now work with uh, Obama to uh, try and get some combination of revenues and changes in entitlements that would uh, put us in better shape for the future. So it's. I think the only way this is gonna work is for voters to begin to react against it, for media to begin to talk about it more directly in terms of what's being done and why, but also, frankly, for voters to begin to reject negative ads and create a, a sanction for some of the awful stuff that's done that reinforces these ideas.
0: We're uh, at the end of our conversation. We didn't even get into the money part of this. You'll have to go to the lecture uh, to to hear about that. Of course, exactly. course, that's an important, important part of it. Uh, Norman Ornstein, who is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, is coming to the Sundance Author Series. That's, of course, at Sundance Resort, and that's on Saturday. Uh, doors open at 1130 a.m. brunch at noon, author presentation at 1 o'clock, followed by guest question and answer and book signing. More information on that is at sundanceresort.com. Norman Ornstein with Thomas Mann, author of the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with uh, the New Politics of Extremism. And, uh, Norman Ornstein, thank you so much.
1: Uh, Really my pleasure, Tom.
0: Uh, We hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow. Another interesting topic, we hope. And for uh, producers uh, Danny Hayes and Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening.